The Mourner's Bench is brought to you by Lab, a media collective that exists to transform how humans engage faith, spirituality, culture, and the world around them. Lab does this by connecting unlikely conversation partners to illuminate what's possible when we let go of fear, practice courage, and embrace difference. Learn more online by visiting theolabmedia.com. Welcome back to the Mourner's Bench. I'm Brandon Thomas. I'm Karen. Oh my God, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) Not that kind of Karen. I'm fucking Malcolm. (laughs) Yes, you are. I'm... Holy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm confused. (laughs) On today's episode, we continue wading through the Advent waters with a discussion about Advent and refusing to wait. We just won't do it. We also discuss how peace does not mean the absence of conflict, but the presence of something more complex. But before that, we've got something on our minds. We need to talk about communal gatherings, religion, and how COVID-19 is shaking up all of our understandings of what it means to be a religious community. Let's get into it. So to get started, we've been dealing with COVID-19 now for the last, what, 24 months? It feels like it. <laughs> Four decades. Ten years. <laughs> the last 10 years have been COVID-19. I guess the last, what, eight, nine? Eight and a half months. Eight yeah. and a half months. It's been interesting to watch how religious communities have wrestled with this, particularly worshiping communities, those who yeah. would gather on a Sunday or a Saturday or another day of the week yep. to express some sort of communal commitment to whatever deity they serve or community they belong to. I haven't been physically going to church for at least the last two years. I've been on an extended sabbatical after my last pastor. <laughs> I thought it was like a protest. <laughs> sabbatical protest, two sides, same point. Brandon was prepped for the pandemic yeah. shutdown beforehand. Right, he knew the apocalypse That's was coming. Right. He was like, yeah, getting ready for this shit. I've been streaming worship. <laughs> what was your religious practice prior to COVID-19 and how has that changed in the midst of this pandemic? For me, I was at church two times on Sunday, two services every Sunday. I served as a youth pastor at a local church here in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. It's an aging congregation. I think some of the elders really rely on that physical gathering. Mm -hmm. And so it's really affected our church. Uh, for me, and trying to be creative enough to figure out how to consistently do youth ministry virtually mm-hmm. has also been challenging. It's an aging church with a youth ministry? It's an aging church with a youth ministry. Are the youth people like 30? No, no, it's actually so. <laughs> 40 and below. It's We're missing the, the, the young people like in between. Like we got like 20 or 30 little kids, uh-huh. very few teenagers, and then it jumps from ages 11 to age 75. Like there's, oh. <laughs> there's very few people. No in between. Very few people in the middle. That puts a new meaning on cradle to the grave. (laughs) (laughs) I was happy that church got canceled, not because I didn't like church, but because I knew that they needed to be pushed to figure out what does church look like in a different context. Mm -hmm. People had really settled into this habit of the same thing for the last 30 years and they needed to be shaken up and they they have been and and, uh, I'm glad. Have they adapted what they do to the times? I think that's a sad part right now. Basically, the pastor logs on the Facebook Wednesdays and Sundays and has a virtual Bible study, but it's not interactive he just talks for like an hour and then he does the same thing on Sunday. It's not his own. No. He just Facebook lives from his kitchen. That's the disappointing part is that they haven't taken this opportunity and accepted the blessing of it to be able to do some self-evaluation and figure out how they need to recreate or evolve in this moment. 
I also am in church often. I don't serve in an official capacity in my congregation, but we are really involved and try to participate in worship pretty often, serving as a liturgist or a volunteer. For the last eight or nine months, my church has basically taken everything that we've typically done on a Sunday morning and posted it online. So there's still a couple of songs, still some scripture readings, still a sermon, you know, all of those same kinds of things are happening. But it's been interesting to me to see how my reaction to those things has been so fundamentally different, even though all of those same pieces are still present. What's been striking to me is the realization of how important relationships with other people are. And I think I've always kind of felt that in the back of my mind, that church is just kind of this big production that I can kind of take or leave. But the people that are there and the opportunities to pass the peace with someone and to like look them in the eye or to linger after the service is over and to have a, a long conversation with someone those are the things that I find myself missing most. And the question that that kind of raises for me is to what extent is the church necessary to create those opportunities to, to brush up against people, to do life with other people? So is your church one of these churches that has people recording the elements from their house or is it like people actually go physically into the building and pre-record things? Yeah, for us, it's all just recorded in people's houses. And then our, our worship pastor, I think, spends an inordinate amount of time every week cutting all of those videos together. Mm -hmm. I think the sermons are recorded like inside the sanctuary, but it's just our pastor by himself. And then the videos are kind of all spliced together. So nothing is live. It's all done ahead of time. Well, how have y'all handled the parts of worship that you enjoy and that you like? I know churches typically will have Bible studies and will have Sunday school classes or just kind of small group gatherings. How have y'all done that? Yeah, I, that is one thing that's been life-giving for me in this season. So our church has small groups, you know, 10 or 12 people who just kind of gather together either every week or every other week and study scripture together or pray together. And we've been involved in a small group for, man, like close to a decade now. And that's something that we've continued. We just, we meet virtually over Zoom. And that has really been kind of a highlight for, for us in this season. Katie, you're leading a small group Sunday school class as well, right? Yeah, and that's probably a better place to start because I would have to talk about the six and a half years of my random practice of worship attendance since I left being a pastor. But I have found that my church during this time has been the Sunday school class that a friend and I are co-leading. And it's a small group, about 12 to 13 women. We gather each Sunday morning for an hour and a half to share about our lives, to pray. We've done scripture. We've done spiritual practice. Practices, it has become the sustaining practice that I have during this time. And so honestly, when I left serving a church six and a half years ago, I had wondered about the church because I couldn't sit in worship anymore and I still haven't been able to and encounter the holy. There were glimpses, but I wondered if the house church model wasn't the way that we needed to go. And while this isn't house church, it is capturing exactly what I think church should be. This authentic engagement where we share our hopes, we share our fears, we share the struggles of our lives. We hold on to hope for one another. And so quite frankly, I have been grateful that I do not have to go sit in a worship service and wrestle with the fact that the church that served me for so many years doesn't bring me life anymore. This, this brings me life. So it sounds like each of you have found new practices and or reclaimed old practices that are sustaining you in different ways as it relates to church. And it sounds like at least for two of you, that's mostly focused around intimate gatherings of people. But Sam, you also have a new practice. You've been leading a prayer every day. Every day. And how has that sustained you? And what does that surface for you? It's also kind of an old practice. I've written about and talked about how my call to ministry came through kneeling by the couch with my grandmother when I was a child and praying 
praying every day. Mm-hmm. My my identity was formed through that experience and through that practice. Yeah. And so as the pandemic started, one of the members at the church says, hey, nobody's praying. Nobody's praying about the situation that we're in. And, and she asked, is that something you'd be willing to do? I said, sure. Mm-hmm. And kind of made this commitment. So since March, we literally have been praying every single day on Facebook Live, on YouTube Live. I've been surprised by the amount of people because sometimes you don't know the impact of the things that you might be doing or participating in until you hear from people. And I have been overwhelmed by the amount of people who've come to say, you just don't know. I went through a procedure this last month and being able to log on and hear these daily prayers have transformed my life. Or I've gotten this diagnosis or I've been lonely. I have nobody in the house. And this has been a sense of community. And I've seen how a family has formed through this virtual gathering of like 10 minutes a day. Yeah. What about y'all? I think I've also realized I am more attuned now to the possibilities of finding the sacred beyond these sort of traditional places that I've looked for it. So Sunday morning for me has always been a time of respite and of renewal. And it's been this refuge for me, this time that I look forward to every week to sort of recharge, to reflect, to get the energy and the insight that I need to go back out and to to face the next week. I haven't really felt that church has done that for me. Certainly since we've gone online, I would say even it, it started before that. The church for me for really quite some time has not been that same sort of rejuvenation, of renewal that it was for me in years past. And so I think I've really tried to look for other things in my life that might help connect me to what feels sacred and and what feels true with a capital T. There have been some mornings during the, the pandemic where my wife and I have just gotten up on Sunday morning and we just go for a long walk. And we do that with the intention of looking for the divine just outside, just in our normal lives and tend to come back from these walks and we keep a record player in our kitchen. And so we'll put on like a gospel record and make breakfast together. And that feels holy to me. That feels sacred to me. And that's been a really powerful practice for us. Those are such simple things, but I have found a kind of rejuvenation, a kind of renewal in paying attention to those simple things in a way that I, I really haven't before in my life. You mentioned singing. This is not at all simple, but I think what I've been wrestling with is the role that music plays. And so you're thinking about playing records and playing gospel music triggered for me what my relationship to church has been. In the last two years, I've been on a complete and total sabbatical from church. I just haven't been going. The only other time that I haven't gone to church like this has been when I spent my year abroad in Germany. I was raised in church. I would keep my family at church. I was at church from the age of 13 all the way to my early 20s. I was doing Tuesday night Bible study at that church, Wednesday night tutorial ministry, Saturday choir rehearsal, Thursday choir rehearsal, Sunday morning, two services, Sunday morning, young adult ministry meetings. I was always at the church. My entire life was organized around church. And for me, that was about the social relationships. It wasn't necessarily about going in on Sunday morning and hearing a sermon. It was about organizing social connections for myself and for people, particularly young adults in the city of Nashville and in that community who didn't have a place to go or a place to belong. But the other part of my commitment to church in in the past has been about worship and about music. And so the longer that I've worked in ministry, the more that that's expanded from just thinking about what song is sung in each slot of the service and actually thinking about the entire liturgy or the entire order of worship, the structure of what we do. And so for me, I started to think about worship probably in the last five years 
as choreography and worship as a production. And so I think what's been intriguing to me is I've always thought about worship as a production and I've always thought about how do we choreograph all of these elements to convey something about God, to convey something about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a religious or a faithful person. And for me, it's never been about how we make people shout or how we make people cry or how we make people feel something. It's about what is the message of the day and whatever the response is from people, that's theirs. But I'm interested in choreography. So how do we make sure that when we transition from the call to worship to the scripture reading or from the uh, opening hymn to the uh, to baptism, how do we do that in a manner where it's all linked and at least in Baptist circles, oftentimes points toward the sermonic moment and sets that up and move on from that. Even though I don't go to church on Sundays and haven't for a while, church is my home, thanks be to God. I've streamed worship. Pre-COVID-19, churches were streaming all the time. And so I've always looked at it and watched to see what's happening in the space. And before COVID-19, when I looked at worship online, I was always asking questions about how are the people involved? How are we engaging the people? Because before COVID-19, even though churches were streaming, it was still about what was happening in the room. You were offered the stream as a courtesy for not being there. But now that we're all sitting at home, I've been looking for how are churches choreographing worship, producing worship in a manner that still has people in mind. And what I found is that most of them don't. What I see on Sunday mornings is a production. I mean, if I were still working in churches, it would be my dream. I wouldn't have to think about choreographing people and their interactions. It's all a production. I can film you on Monday, you on Tuesday, you on Wednesday, you on Thursday, and then have a videographer put it all together. But I think for me, it's like, but what about the people? And it's also been intriguing to see over the course of the pandemic, at least for the churches that I've been streaming, where offering is placed, where tithing is placed. In most congregations, that happens either in the middle or at the end of service, at least the churches that I've been a part of. And over the course of the pandemic, it's moved earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier in the service. And it's become more and more and more and more frequent. The appeal for tithes and offerings has increased over the course of the pandemic. And I get everybody is struggling financially, but the question that that raises for me in terms of production, choreography, and the intent of worship, is it only about money? Is it only about tithes? What are we doing with those funds once we get them? If people are still tithing and offering, how are we supporting them in the pandemic? Are we buying our members face masks? All these questions have come up. I think COVID-19 has presented for the church an invitation to a sort of new life and or an invitation to a certain type of dying. Hmm. As you raise some of those questions, I think about the way that I have viewed some of these things. And I think initially, especially with like tithing and offering and where it's placed, I initially viewed or thought about the impact of giving for our church when people aren't coming to the building. And my first thought is, wow, I'm sure we're taking a huge hit, but we still have a mortgage. We still have financial responsibilities. And so I definitely understand why those pastors or those leaders are saying, hey, we still want you to give. Move it up closer. Make sure make sure we get the people before they log off. I understand that. A lot of churches are probably running deficits right now because they're not meeting. But coming from a church where there's multiple pastors on staff, how are we still providing opportunities and training to ministers who are on staff, who are also observing or understanding what it looks like to pastor during a pandemic. I would say my church probably is failing at this uh, because since March, our head pastor has been the only one who has been taking the lead on these things. And I've routinely thought to myself, this is an opportunity uh, for leaders, for pastors to to say, gather around, like this is something that has never happened. And, and, And a lot of them have said, none of us have ever pastored during a pandemic. This is a unique opportunity 
to pull those ministers in, those folks who are associate or assistant ministers or pastors, and walk through why we're making some of these decisions, why we're doing it this way. This is the situation we're in, and that just isn't happening at, at our church. And I wish that we were a little more intuitive about how we can use this situation to help develop stronger leaders. Yeah. Brandon, I didn't know that you live stream worship so much. I feel like at this point, I am now the least church person in this room. To be clear, I'm not watching entire services. I'm watching the parts that I like from the people that I like. It's a total of 30 minutes. I'm fast forwarding a lot. I'm not feeling guilty at all. I, you know, David, when you said that it's been a few years since maybe you felt that respite on Sunday, it has been since I started pastoral ministry that I experienced joy and rest on a Sunday morning. I still have years of panic of trying to get to the church on time. Churches are just doing the same thing and expecting different results to happen. And while I'm sitting here listening to y'all, I'm like, gosh, am I feeling called to start talking about this? I mean, I don't know the answer is what I know is that these Deep, meaningful relationships are the things that are sustaining people. These prayers by the couch every night, these small group things, the small group Sunday school, like what? how does that become part of our daily life? And that's sacred. What does it mean to shift everything right now? I mean, I think, I think for the first six months, it makes sense. We think we're going to all get back into a normal worship routine, but I wonder what it would take to tell our pastors now. We don't know. Let's shift it all up. The question for me that continues to surface is who and what is the church becoming inside of this? I think the church has been on a mindless trajectory over the course of the last 200 years <laughs> since its inception, even before that. No, I think the church has kind of been, especially in America, allowing mega churches to dictate our models for worship for a long time. And it's been impressive to me to see how many people have these media walls behind them now to engage people in worship in different ways, but really entertain them is what it seems yes. like is the primary goal. Yes. I believe there is a way. I've seen people use media screens for the sake of worship, but it seems like it's mostly entertainment at this juncture. And I'm not certain who's asking the question about who are we becoming right now? Everybody's looking toward the day and the time that we're able to go back into the house. And I believe that 90% of us, probably 100% of the church and religious communities more broadly, will go back to doing things in the exact same way. Correct especially for white folks, the church was already dying before the pandemic. Y'all were going to church less and less. Black folks, I think is the same thing. The fewer people are going to churches, it's just not as drastic of a trend. But I guess the question is, who is asking the question, what are we becoming? Because it's not enough now just to go back to the building. Will there be something beautiful about going and taking the bread and drinking the cup when we're able to do so safely? Now, I'm not going to do it for another two years. I just don't trust none of y'all. I'm going to be in worship with my N95 until 2030. It's not enough just to go back and wait for that moment. People are changing. Their desires are changing. Their needs are changing. Their spiritual hunger is changing. Katie, as you were talking, I was thinking about the brunch phenomenon. So many folks think church is about the relationships. And if that's what it's about, why do I have to go through and listen to 16 courses of just as I am and hear you like browbeat me with the Bible when I can go drink a mimosa and have a pancake? As you were speaking, Brandon, I'm thinking about scripture. I'm thinking about the children of Israel and how they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Why are you trying to preach? Do you need an organ? Do you need an organ? (laughs) How they wandered in the desert for 40 years. Pressure claim. Because there was something accompanying them into this this new place that Mm -hmm. God had promised for them. What, What if this pandemic is actually God's way of purging some things from us? 
us that don't need to go into this next place of worship, this next place of connection and relationship with God? What if God is trying to kill some things in the habits that we've formed? Mm. And so churches need to shut down. She's waving. Y'all can't see this, but Katie is giving y'all real good white people worship over here. <laughs> worship daughter, worship. I mean, but I've heard people say, oh, I can't wait to get back in church and I'm going to shout. Like, I can't wait to get back and do the same things that we've done. And why? And mm-hmm. and why? But um, something within me believes that that's part of the reason that we're not back. That there's some things that have to die before we're able to go back into that space because we can't, we can't occupy the same way we did before we left the question i man i'm i'm you feeling the spirit too aren't you i, yeah. I am oh shit I am. If, David, if, David, if you speak in a tongue Ooh, the I, holy ghost is real man it's moving you hear the conceit to that bullshit i resonate with a lot of that i think the the question it raises for me is like what's really essential about church i was listening to all of you speak and that was kind of the question running through the back of my mind there are so many you know practices just these entrenched patterns that we've kind of fallen into and now we just follow because it's comfortable or because that's what we know to do and i think you're right a lot of that does need to die to go by the wayside or at the very least let's think about why it is that we do those things all of that for me raises this deeper question of like what is the church for what is worship for what is the church what is worship i don't have an answer to that i do think though that it looks a lot different than institutionalized religion that's kind of the one thing that i i feel really clear about i think you go to a good point there malcolm because you say what is essential about worship what is essential about the church and what i learned in seminary i really learned it before i learned this from my grandmother seminary can't claim this is that worship is about god mm-hmm. and from my vantage point We have been unfaithful in pointing people back to God. It actually has all become about the church. There's nothing sacred and holy and other than us and the institution and the building and the pastor and the singer and there's the media wall. There's nothing for God. I was thinking about you and Sarah taking walks because you want to experience something other than yourself, something divine. And the question is, if we're failing to point people to God in a time of pandemic when we can't gather, How faithful were we at pointing people to God before this all started? If you haven't cultivated that practice in normal times, how can you do it in times of chaos? Your grandma was pretty wise woman. She didn't say all of it. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) but she produced the people that produce you. That's what you don't get or you don't necessarily get over brunch. But you do. But you can, you can. That's why I said you don't necessarily because I... I think you can have a group of people that gather, whether it's you and your spouse or you and your family and you you drink mimosas or you gather with friends on a Sunday evening for dinner, which is what I did back in North Carolina after I left the church or the Sunday school class. I think the difference is that we spend the time seeking God's presence in our lives and articulating it. I can't imagine the church doing that anymore. And I do think brunch gives you that is the challenge. So I used to always be confused when I was in black worship spaces and some Pentecostal expressions of worship among white folks shouting. You know, people get the Holy Ghost and, ah, thank you, Jesus, or people speaking in tongues. And I couldn't ever understand why is it that this only happens here in church on Sunday mornings? Why doesn't it happen when you walk in the grocery store? You didn't know the right people. I know some people that are shout between the apples well, and the grapes <laughs> and Kroger. I will say, <laughs> I know some of them too. But, but, that's, but that's an exception, yeah. right? 
How I came to think about that is that there's something about coming to worship and being among other people hmm. where we all bring the little piece of the divinity that we have inside of us. Right. Right, The divine God, the holy other, the reliable other is too vast, too big, too great for any one human to contain. Mm. But we all possess Come on a now. portion Correct. of that image inside of us. Yes. And so when we get to church on a Sunday morning, I just thought about a song. The Jesus in me loves Jesus in you. The Jesus in me loves Jesus in you. It's so easy. So easy to love. I cut one of the so easy's, but yeah, yeah. the reason that song came to mind is because it is this, the divine in me meets the divine in you, meets the divine in David, fucking Malcolm, meets the divine in KT, meets the divine in Sam, Pastor Sam. Okay. And there's something about the divine that we all possess mm. that's just too much for yes. any of us to contain. On, preach it, preach yes. it. And so we start shouting. Huh? Because of the people who are in the room with us. And yes. it's actually, if we're trying to point people back to God and we're finding that in Sunday school classrooms via Zoom, or we found that previously around the brunch table when we happen yeah. to have a mimosa in our hand, happen to. we actually are encountering the divine mm. when we more faithfully encounter one another. one another. All right, let's take a break. And when we return, we'll have part two of our Advent discussion. Why peace does not mean the absence of conflict and tension. Say what? You heard right. Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm going to be honest with you. I chewed tobacco during exam week every semester. <laughs> when the caffeine wouldn't keep me awake, a pinch, a skull wintergreen, and a spit cup. That is how I got the exam. I no joke. I thought I heard you say some pretty white shit. I know. <laughs> that was right, right in your country. I know. You just David. That is hundred percent true. Oh. There are no lies right there. Do you still dip every now and then? I do not. My wife would literally have my life if I did. She should. I know. I'm not proud of it. My heart just sunk. I know. But my brain is like, you're not surprised, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> So we're still wading through the Advent waters and waiting and anticipating last Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, we talked about hope. The second Sunday of Advent is peace. The challenge for me with Advent this year and why it's hitting a little bit different is I revisited Martin Luther King, Why We Can't Wait, and how Southern folks, white folks, kept saying, just wait, you're doing too much too quickly. Calm down, slow down. You're demanding you're too much. I find that Martin Luther King is challenging my normal Advent rhythm and trying to push me to redefine what it means to wait. In addition to that, it's challenging my notion of peace. I oftentimes hear white folks appeal to peace. If there is racial tension, ethnic tension, any sort of tension at all that lasts longer than five minutes, the call is, can't we just have peace? Can't we all just get along? And I think that's a very diluted model for peace. This month, my spiritual director opened up our time together by reading when Jesus goes into the temple and turns over the tables, which was him calling the church to be its best self. He is the prince of peace, and yet he's going in and setting everything on its head. So when I think of peace, I think of an internal peace that I feel when I know that I am in community with God, 
when I am able to listen to God's call, when I am able to spend time intentionally dwelling in God's presence. That peace is what enables me to take on the injustice in the world. I have this same struggle with peace in the Presbyterian Church. One of our ordination vows is, will you further and maintain the peace, unity, and purity of the church? And peace and unity and purity have always been a way of keeping the status quo present. Peace is crap, unity is crap, and purity are crap when others are being exploited, dismissed, ignored, and killed. And so when I think about peace, I think about getting the strength and the courage and conviction within my relationship with God as I then go out into the world and work for a new kingdom. What about y'all? Tension is an inevitable part of every relationship that matters. We can choose to live without tension between one another, but that oftentimes is a sign that there isn't much between us, that we haven't really waded into the deep waters together. As I reflect on this notion of peace, I keep circling back to this idea that the tension really is inevitable and at times necessary. We have to lean into the hard things, the disagreements, the hurt. I think oftentimes we think of peace in terms of this sort of passive tranquility. When I read Ping, I think about peace as justice and love taking root in the world. And I'm not sure that our notion of peace is expansive enough to hold all of that. When I think about peace, I think about conflict. And I think it's important to understand that peace isn't necessarily the absence of conflict. Why you be trying to preach, Sam? I, I need a word, man. You can go ahead and preach. Some of my thoughts in seminary were amazing, and I don't have them anymore. You ain't the only preacher like that. <laughs> You're basically a mediocre white man now. <laughs> I don't know what was going on during seminary, but I was like firing. And so like now it's like, man. I've come to understand that the plurality of God's creation, the fact that God created all of us so differently, means that there is going to be conflict. And to me, our moral task is to live into the reality of conflict by making choices that facilitate transformation. If there was only peace and never conflict, how would we live into that reality? How would we make choices that facilitate transformation? Would transformation even be possible in the absence of conflict? What do we mean when we say peace? And how is it that we deploy peace? Is it to diffuse tension? Because tension and conflict, those aren't unpeaceful things. Right. Unpeaceful. I like that. Is unpeaceful a word? It, it is now. Oh, we'll make it a word. Miriam Brandon. <laughs> Speaking of Miriam Brandon, my favorite place to go is always Miriam Webster. So I'm going to give you all three definitions. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> I was joking. That's my homie. Me and Miriam Webster go way back. So number one, a state of tranquility or quiet, such as freedom from civil disobedience, a state of security or order within a community provided for by law or custom. Number two, freedom from disquieting or oppressive thoughts or emotion. Now, I could preach a whole sermon on that. 
freedom from disquieting or oppressive thoughts or emotions. Now, if we want peace, there's a responsibility on your part. If you're causing me oppression in general, then I definitely have oppressive thoughts or emotions. And so that isn't something that we can achieve just by saying, let's not talk about it. No, if us not talking about it causes me to continue to have oppressive thoughts and emotions, then we don't have peace. The third one is my favorite. Harmony and personal relations. Peace as harmony and personal relations. And so when you are playing an instrument. Come on. I see where you're going. Mm-hmm. Come on. <laughs> you want to tag team? No, no, go ahead. I'm going to just amen in your corner. You. But when you're playing an instrument, let's just use the piano and you have the string. In order for that string to make a note, you have to stretch it. Mm. There has to be tension. Mm-hmm. I like that. When you're playing the guitar, and I don't play the guitar, but you're putting a new string on it because mm. you broke the string, you can't just let the string be there floppy. That's not peace. You can't have harmony if the string is flopping. You have to stretch the chord. People in choirs used to get mad at me because if there's a three-part harmony, I'm going to add a fourth or a fifth note. And they'd always be like, Brandon, is that right? Yes, it's right, I promise. But it don't sound right. It doesn't sound right because it's creating a little bit of dissonance. Harmony doesn't always mean it's a chord that sits easy on the ears. When I'm thinking about peace through the lens of music, it don't always sound easy. If you've been used to hearing a standard chord, just three notes, and that's your version of peace, then when I add a fourth or a fifth note, when I change the structure of the chord, your ears will initially think that it's not peaceful. You have to train your ears to hear something different. There's complexity in peace. We weren't as musically inclined as you in our church. So we sung most of our songs in unison. I just want to praise you. (laughs) Everybody sang the same note. And I think what's challenging is people often think. Oh, my God. I I see where you're going. They often Mm -hmm. conflate peace Uh with uniformity. My God. And the the the. The difficult work uh-huh. is not forcing everyone to be the same, yes. but to strive to sing different notes in a way that creates a harmonious chord. And when you do that work, what you're singing is totally different than what I'm singing. But when we do that work to figure out how those things come together, yeah. it creates something so beautiful. That's hard work. That's the difficult work. You've got to train your ear to hear that. You've got to train your ear to sing a different chord that works harmoniously with someone else's music. And when we talk about peace and conflict, what seems like conflict is not forcing someone to be the same, not turning away or shutting them out, but somehow finding the rhythm, finding the note that allows them to sing and allows you to sing at the same time. That's good because it's more simple. It's it's not even about different harmonies. People think peace is about everybody singing C. Yes. Everybody sing the same exact note. You can sing the note an octave higher or octave lower, but that's as much diversity as we want in our singing. Everybody sing this one note. Right. That's not peace. That's oppression. You got 88 keys on the piano. Side by side on the piano keyboard. Thank you, Karen. Right. All metaphors break apart, but like what came to mind as you were sitting there, Sam, I'm literally visualizing the piano and thinking about how people think the quest for peace is about trying to get everybody to see mm-hmm. and not looking at the other 87 keys right there in front of you. Right. And oftentimes when you're trying to get people to sing more complex harmonies and black people do that. I mean, so a lot of black songs are in minor keys and oftentimes those minor keys sound 
challenging for white ears. People have at least been trying to get us to stick on the white keys in terms of our harmony. It always becomes more yeah. complex. It's not, so once we teach people to sing in harmony, let's get them on the black keys. Right. Like if peace is about avoiding black keys because it sounds too difficult for your ears, there is still something that you're missing. There's still yep. beauty that you're missing. There are 88 fucking keys. And I don't think peace is possible until we play every single note. Correct and let every single note sing. It may not mean every note sings all the time, but we've become so familiar with every single note that we know when to call on the person that plays this one. Right, because it's not just 88 keys, it's 88 keys and the combinations that you can create, like innumerable combinations you can create with them. Peace is an expansive concept. It, we, we don't ever reach it. Once we learn the folks how to sing in harmony, mm -hmm. singing country music, you gotta learn how to do it with jazz. You got to learn how to do it with the blues. Right. You got to learn how to do it with rap music. You got to learn all of the different stylings because yeah. you still won't know peace in its entirety until you learn it in this complex format. I love jazz music for this reason. One of the things that I find so beautiful about jazz is that nothing is scripted. You just show up with your gifts. The beauty of jazz is that it's created in the moment and you bring all of you, and I'm going to bring all of me, and we're going to find a structure, a sandbox. We're going to agree to stay in this sandbox, but we're going to play in this sand. There, there will be something creative and joyful and playful happening here. And we're not all trying to play C. We're not even all trying to play the same song, frankly. What we're doing is creating space for each of us to bring our gifts, and we trust that something beautiful can emerge from that. Yes, we agree to a structure, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. for you who think that peace looks like two notes, for you that peace looks like there's a rhythm, you have a role. Mm -hmm. We need you to keep the pace. And we need you just to stick around so you can learn. We're going to stay right there. That's all you got to do. Somebody's got to play the hi-hat. Just get the rhythm. Yep. Right? So, and then we want you to show up. And not only do we let, invite each person to do their own thing while we still got the bass, we're going to celebrate it when they finish. I don't know how many jazz albums I've listened to, and the, I love it when the hand claps are still there. We, we, not only, and, 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 that's, and that's not like a white clap, <laughs> right? That's not like a, oh, that was very good. Thank you for your Negro music. No, we're going to be fully involved in this, and we're going to celebrate one another and continue making music together. It's a communal process. So the next time you want to talk about peace, look at a piano. Mm, mm, mm. All right, it's about time for our altar call. But first, let's take a quick break. So this week's altar call starts now. I thought that with COVID-19, these people wouldn't be posting these nasty Thanksgiving pictures on Instagram. <laughs> Every year, y'all sit there, y'all put all this slop on y'all's plates and you post a picture talking about, oh, look how good this is. No, it's not. It probably tastes good. I believe you. But you have cooked all the nutrients out of the green beans. You have cooked yeah. all of the yep. color out of the greens. <laughs> Your turkey looks dry. Your mm -hmm. cornbread looks flat. I am placing on the bench anybody and everybody who thought it was a good idea <laughs> to post a picture of their Thanksgiving food. Yeah. And while 
I'm probably one of those people. I'm about to go your Instagram. You bet not have nothing posted. You bet not have nothing posted. You know he does. Thanksgiving food does not look appealing on a plate. It does not. Ever. It does not. You could be the best of cooks. If anything, take the picture with the turkey steel hole. Don't do it on the plate. It looks like someone threw up on the plate. Like, don't put it all just on the plate together. This is just, take note, people. Don't do it like that. Don't do it. Take pictures of the dessert table. Yes. There you go. Desserts are Just don't take pictures of the food. <laughs> oh, gosh. Today, I'm placing on the bench all of those super saved Christians who feel like saying grace at an event is their time to preach a sermon. Mm-hmm. In my family... You didn't eat breakfast on Thanksgiving. Like, there was no pre-Thanksgiving meal. Like, you waited. I don't care if we ate at 6 o'clock. Like, mm-hmm. everything was closed. There was no restaurants you could go to. Usually, my mom is like, stay out of the kitchen, get out of here. You came to Thanksgiving hungry. And so, when the preacher of the family wants to pray for 30 minutes, I'm like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a preacher. Can we eat? Like, we can finish the prayer later. I was waiting almost 30 minutes to, to eat. Who was praying? I was praying. <laughs> <laughs> but my point remains. <laughs> you know, next time let's have this conversation before you go pray a 30 minute prayer. Sam said, I'm putting everybody who prays off. No, but he said the super saved. Just the super saved 30 minute prayers. Yes. The unsaved folks like you can pray for 30 minutes. Exactly. Yes. You got it. We need to talk to God more. <laughs> what else is going on the bench? Presbyterian white women. I, I thought only Katie did that. <laughs> I'm kidding. Sort of. I mean, white women in general. You can't put them all on at the same time, so just start the Presbyterian. <laughs> you did on the first altar call. I know. said, I can't put nobody on the bitch. I'm putting every white woman in the Presbyterian church on the bench. <laughs> no, I said liberal do-gooders. <laughs> I think I'm putting on the bench all of the people who have not shifted and changed how they're doing this holiday season. Because with those Thanksgiving celebrations last week, We got another week. Our numbers are going to keep going up and they're going to keep going up. I know some people whose families went ahead and took COVID tests or they quarantined before they went and that was great. But I'm putting on the bench everyone who's not changing their practices for this holiday season. You have to place them on the bench every single time for the rest of the year. And maybe by the time we get to Christmas, our prayers will work and they'll stay home. That's right. That's right. That's what I'm going to do. Malcolm, who are you putting on the bench? Today, I want to put on the bench General Services Administrator Emily Murphy. What What is the GSA? What is the General Services Administration? Like what, what the is- the Girl Scouts of America is what There I you go. <laughs> and honestly, she looks like a scout master. Y'all take a quick- I mean- <laughs> Take a look at her picture. Does she look like I a lesbian? Be. Because I feel like all scout matches look like lesbians. Cargo pants. I'm not. I'm not saying one way or the other. But I mean, I, oh, that's just, a lesbian. Just, just, just take a look. I, so, so Emily Murphy, I have no idea what your actual job description is. What you're actually supposed to be doing. But it took you like literally weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks to finally begin the transition process and the blatant hypocrisy. 
there's absolutely no justification for having not done your job for a month. And she got away with it. She just sat around, didn't do a thing. And that has real consequences. I mean, I think that the thing that I keep coming back to is your delay isn't just a way to score political points. There are real things happening in the world. I thought you were about to preach, Malcolm. I thought she was about to go black and Baptist and talk to Joe Biden. Your delay is not a denial. <laughs> so wait a minute, what the guy to Malcolm? <laughs> You don't want to hear me preach, trust me. On the next episode of The Mourners, bitch. <laughs> no, no, nobody tune in. Uh, so General Services Administrator Emily Murphy, I hope to see you on the bench. I hope the spirit moves in your life. And the last thing we're putting on the bench are pants. I'm putting pants on the bench. <laughs> <laughs> if you could only see Sam's look. <laughs> Hear me out. For the entirety of COVID-19, I've been wearing my sweatpants and shorts and sometimes no pants. Not right now. <laughs> <laughs> Business on top, party on the bottom. As we're hearing more and more good news about vaccines, I'm kind of getting nervous about having to put on real pants again. True. I would prefer True. a life where we wouldn't have to do that. So I'm putting pants on the bench and I'm hoping they die with the other folks Sam has killed over the last few weeks. I haven't <laughs> killed them. I have not killed them. You have prayed for their deaths. I hope they die. <laughs> and burn They in deserve hell. to die. <laughs> and I hope that they burn in hell. Ah! <sighs> <laughs> okay. uh, Sam, Sam is placing my vocal warm-ups on the bench. <laughs> oh, yes, Can yes. Please? Oh, Jesus. Ah. And that is a wrap on today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button. And if you happen to be listening in Apple Podcasts, rate and review The Mourner's Bench. We would really appreciate it. We'll be back on Thursday with another Mourner's Bench one-on-one, this time featuring a discussion between Malcolm David and Kate T. Ricks. And we are so grateful for those of you who have emailed us in the last week. Y'all be listening. Y'all better email. If you have any more suggestions or questions, hit us up via email at what's up at thefeolab.com. Be like Layla Hathaway. She's like, oh. you gonna sing in three parts. <laughs> <laughs> she, she can sing in three part harmony by herself. <laughs> I can't do it. Nope.